Hello and welcome to Rugby World Magazine's One Game at a Time. Before we get going with this episode, a small plea. If you're enjoying these insights into the world of some of your favourite rugby players, please do take a bit of time to leave a review. We would be ever so grateful. We're also looking for ideas as to who you'd like to hear from, which game was your favourite ever and which player you'd like to hear tell their story. Even give us a question and your name could appear on that very podcast. Get in touch with Rugby World magazine with the heading One Game at a Time. We want to make this podcast for the fans. And speaking of fans, in this episode, a true fan favourite. Few players have had an effect on the game like Skulk Brits. The effervescent South African has lit up pitches all across the world with his adventurous, fearless and tireless work ethic. I spoke to him at home in Stellenbosch and was fascinated to hear his thoughts, not only on an incredible 2011 Premiership final, but his career as a whole. Getting a go at the World Cup in 2019, retirement, and how he feels the salary cap saga has affected the Saracens' legacy. The clip of the match we watched is linked in the details to this episode, so please do watch along if you like. He was an incredible player and is a wonderful person. This is One Game at a Time. Skulk Brits, how are you? I'm actually phenomenal. Um, (laughs) I don't look fantastic. I'm uh, uh, quite grey and I've shaved off my hair and now I understand why I don't shave my hair off normally. (laughs) But otherwise, it's been a hard lockdown in, in South Africa. We're only allowed to train actually between six and nine. So that's been quite frustrating. But otherwise, um, spending uh, 10 times more at home than I did last year. I have to say, and and this sounds a a little bit keen and a little bit strange, but as soon as I saw you, I I remembered why myself and, and the rugby public, certainly over in the United Kingdom, but probably all over the world, why they liked you that that big smile of yours i've missed that big smile of yours it, it should it, it should be an antidote it should be used around the world you should get your smile out a bit more well i've been trying to put it out as much as i can you know after i, I got my my braces off when i was about 15 i thought i you know i want to show everybody my pearly whites um i've, I've been trying hard sam but it's it's um well if if the if Dan Carter can make a return, I can make a return. Right. The rules of this podcast are very simple. Yes. Uh, I'm going to ask you about one game from your illustrious playing career. Um, yes. We touched on that. You, you are retired. You have retired, right? I mean, you, 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 yeah? <laughs> uh, yes, sir. I have retired. There's uh, no coming back. Has, has being retired given you time to sort of sit back and think about what you achieved? Is, is that something difficult to do whilst you're playing? And then when you stop playing, is there a chance to sort of enjoy the fruits of your labour? Um, not really. I haven't actually looked bad, back at my career. I mean, I have retired once. Uh, and, well, I'm not planning on uh, rejoining any team soon, uh, except Team Brits at home. But for me, it, it was, I love making memories. It was, for me, never about the, the goal. It's always been, for me, about the journey. And uh, like most of my teammates will tell you that for me, it was always making the most of every day. Uh, I always wore my, my emotions on my sleeve. Uh, sometimes players didn't like it or liked it and coaches liked it or didn't like it. But for me, it was always an unbelievable time to do something that I honestly love doing. I mean, uh, now being in the corporate world, it's, it's, it's totally different. When I picked up a ball when I was five, six and watching my idols play the game, um, I, did the, I was lucky enough to do it uh, for almost uh, 32 years and 
20 of that was from a professional perspective. We're going to go back to 2011. The match I want to look yeah. at with you is the Aviva Premiership final in May of that year. But before we do, yes. I'm going to ask you about coming to England in the first place. Yeah. 2008, 2009, you're enjoying yourself playing for Western Province for the Stormers. Mm. It, it, it's quite a risk for you and your loved ones to up sticks and move to England. How did it come about? Well, funny enough, you know, it, it's sort of my wish or aim or target to become a a household name from a Springbok perspective didn't really realize in South Africa. I mean, I had John Smith there that eventually came and played for, for uh, Saracens, but there wasn't for me up, any uptake. They wanted a big hook, uh, typical South African style, and I just didn't suit, suit that mold. And for me, it was sort of, okay, fine, what is the next step? And the next step for me was, okay, let's go, let's go to France, experience the language, experience the culture, uh, you know, travel the world, all those kind of things. And as I'm talking, funny enough, with Claremont, out of the blue comes Brennan Fenter that then was coach at the Stormers. And he told me he's um, actually getting involved with Saracens. And I said, oh, that's good. I played against Saracens in 2004, 2003 for the Cats back in the day. Saracens was always mid-table, nothing special. And I thought, okay, fine, I'll look at it. And then when he told me about they're going to make memories and treat you differently and um, all those kind of things, he sort of sold the whole idea that I won't be playing myself to death. We can have lots of fun. So, you know, when a coach tells you you're not going to play every game, you go, okay, fine. And I only signed for one year at, at Saracens. And the plan was always to go back to France and make some proper proper dough. As, as you know, the round is worth match. So with a pound in the euro, you can get quite, quite far. And then I arrived there and the weirdest thing happened. We sit in the meeting. They've got, all got name tags. This is after... I didn't even know this. They they got rid of a lot of players. That's called Black Monday. And they, yeah, I think it was was May 2009, they got rid of like 12 players. And we arrived there. And we were just a bunch of uh, nobodies really. And nobody knew each other. That we literally had to have name tags. First meeting we sit down, they go, okay, boys, we're here to make memories. And I'll go, okay, great. This sounds good. We're not here to win any games. And if it, someone told me we're not here to win anything, I'd think born loser. They don't, they, they don't want to win as much as I do. And then eventually they started talking about the whole mentality, you know, um, treating people unbelievably well. But we're still going to train unbelievably hard, but just from a statistical perspective. And then, you know, 10 years later, uh, I left Saracens. And for me, England has embraced uh, my family, myself, my kids were born in in Luton and Dunstable. Uh, they still got proper Pommy accents that I get. They get teased every day. Um, but for me, it was probably not just the best rugby decision, Sam, that I made. This is probably the best life decision myself and my wife has made is is going to London. Your first season at Saracens uh, leads you all the way to Twickenham in May 2010 to face. Leicester Tigers in what became quite an unforgettable final. And on one not without incident, there was there was that uh, very good claim. Dave Pearson, the referee, was in the way when Ben Young scampered through. Reese Gill dropped the ball meters out. That 
bizarre final try from Leicester uh, by Dan Hipkiss, who was hit high and then released and just carried on and, and scored the try from the restart. I mean, it was an extraordinary fur end of a first season for you. But my question really is about Leicester. Were they the were they the blueprint? Were, were they what Saracens wanted to become? They've been so dominant throughout that sort of last decade and, and perhaps beyond. Were they the people that you thought we 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 do want to be as 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 good as those guys? And we we looked at uh, at the Tigers and I must say, as a player, you wonder why certain teams and organisations do well, and you, you you can't look away from they were the the team that led the way. They just beat, I think back then, they just beat an Irish the year before. And then we fought, get them in 2010, end of 2010 season. Uh, and everyone in the beginning of the season said, we're going to be relegated. Somehow we went on a winning streak of, I don't know how many games. And we had a bit of a, a bubble during the, the year, a bit of a, a slump. And then we came back and changed the way, way we play it. That's more exciting and not just... To, uh, from a statistical perspective, the best way to go. Um, and then we meet them. And you, you think that we never wanted to mimic the Tigers from a cultural perspective. The, the idea from, from their perspective is their training was extremely hard and physical. There was a lot of orgy-bodgy training. And we said, okay, fine. Anyone that hits anyone else or punches someone else is off the pitch. And if he does it more than, if it becomes a habit, and he's out of our organization. So we, we respect a great work ethic. But if you, don't, if you can't respect players uh, from, a, from a rapey perspective, then, then he isn't, you're not welcome in our culture and our environment. And that was not just the same from player to player, but from coach to, to player. I mean, I've had more honest conversations in one year than I had the previous 10 years from any coaches. Uh, sometimes it was things I didn't want to hear. Um, because you know, in the beginning you arrive at a place and you humble and all those kind of things and um, that was humility was one of our core values and one of those things is sometimes when you get out of line is because of your ego and that was quite a, quite a change for me as a player as well is to say okay fine we want as Saracens we want to lead the way not just from how we treat people but, but from a rugby perspective, yes, we, I can remember in season, purely rugby, we prepared so well to play Tigers. And I think they gave us 20 points at uh, Walford Road. And we came in the Monday morning, quite devastated after the game, as I thought we had a great preparation for the week to play Tigers. And as we walked into the meeting, Brenna Fenter stands on the front and says, boys, I just want to say thank you. I go, What? Normally, if you lose, you do fitness and you do uh, extra fitness and extra gym and extra training. He says, we just got beaten by a better side. So what, and that changed my whole mentality for, about losing is don't fear lo losing or uh, a loss. Try to learn from it. And he said in the front and went, okay, what can we learn about the Tigers? They are probably the, they are the best side in, in the premiership. They are one of the best sides in Europe. How, what can we learn? What do they do that is just so good? How, why are they 5% or 10% better than us? And then you start analyzing them and how they do things. And that's how, why it's so difficult to stay at the top. As people analyze you to the 10th degree, 
to, to find out why you're so good. And we did exactly the same back then from a rugby perspective is they were just, they had a great set piece, they had a great culture. And we, we tried to mimic certain rugby related things to catch up where, where they were. Let's have a look at these uh, two teams that took the field in the in the final in 2011. I'll read them out yes. for people on the on the podcast. Uh, the Leicester Tigers 15, uh, fullback Scott Hamilton on the wing, yeah. uh, Horatio uh, Aguja. Uh, the centres Matt Smith, Anthony Allen on the left wing, Alessandro Tuolangi at uh, halfback, Toby Flood and Ben Youngs. The front row for Leicester, Marcus Ayetza, George Shooter, Martin Castro Giovanni. Uh, second row, Steve Murphy and George Skivington, and a back row of Tom Croft. Craig Newby captained the side from open side and Jordan Crane played eight. I mean, you can see it there. That, that, is a, that is a team packed with quality. You could see why they've been so dominant for so long. If I look at that team, I mean, they gave, gave us a proper, proper whipping during the season. I mean, you look at that and you just say, that's quality throughout. But what was amazing about that Leicester side, if you look at not just that year, but the year before, and the year before that is, yes, they had great individual players, but the combined effort and how they manage energy flow, how they manage their set piece and where they play rugby, the combined parts was more than, well, the combined effort was more than the, the individual parts, you know, and that was a tough bunch to play. And they had, uh, what was difficult was then they had belief. And it's hard to play against a team that just doesn't lose. And they, as I say, when it becomes a habit and they just, for you'll be ahead with 10 minutes to go, but they always have to believe they will win the game. It's almost like uh, every season you'll see them being mid-table or fourth, fifth. And then somewhere in between the middle of the season to the end of the season before you see again the top of... Top of the log, you know, it's like, I know they had a lot of players playing international rugby, but somehow after sort of the Six Nations, you just know, okay, yeah, they come. Let's have a look at that Saracen side. 15 and fullback, Alex Good. 14, uh, David Strettle. The centres, Chris Wiles and Brad Barrett. 11, James Short. Uh, halfback, Owen Farrell and, and Neil DeCock. Uh, the front row, Matt Stevens, yourself, Scott Britz at two, Carlos Nieto at three, Steve Borthwick and Moritz Botha were in the second row, Borthwick captain the side, a back row of Kelly Brown, Jacques Berger and Ernst Joubert. Um, th- that is a side, when I look at it, screams toughness, screams uh, hard, uh, nuggety outlook on it all. But... Actually, let me just focus on one player as well, because 2000, I mean, this was an important season for the dawning of one particular player. And I know rugby is a team game, but 2011 really saw Owen Farrell take the sort of stage. You know, 2010, Glenn Jackson had played in the final. 2011, Owen Farrell, just if you can, because he has become perhaps, you know, as dominant in the world game as anyone over the last sort of uh, few years. You, you talk about how you saw the progression of Owen Farrell and into that Saracen side. What is amazing is, is looking at this kid, and literally that was back then when, I mean, literally he was playing, still playing for Storm. And you think, how can this guy at that age, I think when he started, he was about 17 for Saracens. I think he played one game with his dad, with Andy. And you think, wow, this kid is just um, something special to play. Uh, at that level, at that age, is something you don't really, or that time, you didn't see in South Africa. And then you see this kid coming through. And I mean, if you look at 
the squad you had Alex Good, that was young, Andy Saul, Jamie George, that was young. And, and it was like, if you're good enough, you're old enough. If a guy performs and he earns respect of the guys next to, next to you, and to be a 10 and running a game at that age, that's why he is one of the best flies in the world. It's, it's not just his kicking ability or his managing the game ability. It's his mental toughness. A lot of the rugby league boys also will say it's from, from a Wigan upbringing. <laughs> but, I mean, he's been, most of his life has been hopping. But, uh, I mean, it's, it was amazing seeing a kid of that age taking that responsibility and, and running with it. Let's have a look at these uh, final highlights. So I've got a sort of a, a just under six-minute package here. I have to say, when I looked through it before, it, it did sort of seem a little bit like a, a personal highlight reel. I mean, you were everywhere that day. Did, did you feel like it? Did you feel like you had a good game? Luckily, Saracens gave me, not just uh, on that game, but during the season gave me the freedom to play what I see. Uh, and that's what I s- said, you know, certain players is there to be more structural and Saracens gave me the freedom, unlike um, the teams in South Africa, that I can be, I was in the backfield, I was scrumming, I was uh, in the lineout, I was doing a lot of things that I enjoy doing. I love running with the ball, I love tackling, and I tried to love stealing. I hated rucking, but but then you had a guy like Jacques Berger that loves a ruck, or Maurice Bertha that loves a ruck. I, I, I never enjoyed the, the feeling of really cleaning people. I want the ball. So I'm just thinking about it. I mean, everybody's got different aims in life. When I st- picked up the ball when I was six and s- or seven, I didn't pick up the ball to think I want to ruck someone. I wanted to run or tackle someone. Uh, and uh, although I wanted to kick a lot more than I did during my rugby career, uh, rightly so, Owen and Goody said, well, rather run with it than kick it. So you're not a great kicker. Uh, do you remember, I mean, pre- pressing play on these highlights now, do you, do you remember the, the feeling going out? What, what, what are your thoughts when, you know, just before, in the tunnel, going out? What, what are your thoughts, you know, sort of in these moments just before kickoff? Normally, you know, before a big game like this or a final, they go, okay, this is a combination of everything we've done. We've worked hard to get you and before they came, they went, guys, you know, irrelevant if we win or lose, we've been successful. And I go, you know, one of those weird chats again. And, I've, and they go, well, we've succeeded in what we wanted to do. And, and, I, and I was thinking in my mind, okay, so what did we achieve? We got to the final. Lastly, we got to the final and lost. Um, what did we achieve? And, and they changed the whole thing around by taking the pressure off the players and said, what is our aim for the season? Our aim was to make memories, make friends. And that was the main aim of, of, of Saracens. You know, it's work hard, treat each other with respect, try to be humble. And, and, they, and they showed the highlight and said, congratulations on, the, on a great season, guys. This one game won't define who we are and what we do. Go and enjoy today. And, and that was pretty much the perfect message for me as a, as a rugby player. You know, I'm a quite emotional guy. I'm not quite structured in my thoughts. And for me, it was the easiest thing. If I can go play with freedom and I love what I'm doing, then normally you get the best out of me. Quite tight to start with and, and, and an element of a, a couple of penalty goals from, from each side. And, 
you can see here footage of, of, of quite a hard-hitting game. I don't suppose any final is, is soft in any shape or form, but did you feel it out there with a, with a little bit of 2010, the battle raging from the, from the year previous? Was there a little bit of, of picking up the, the same weapons again against the same counterparts? It was pretty much, we always knew with the Tigers, it's never easy. Um, but it's trying to break down confidence little by little. Uh, and in the game, I mean, there's a lot of things that people don't see is, for example, the chasing of David Stretzel or Chris Wiles playing at 13. Uh, there were so many different parts of the game that, that didn't get enough credit. For example, Steve's calling system was amazing. You know, it's... Uh, Carlos Nieto and Matt Stevens scrumming. Those days, you had un unbelievable scrumming pack at at, at um, club level. You know, with Castro there, uh, it's, uh, it was hard there. Normally, what they do is they tie you out so much from scrumming wise and from set piece that you can't move around the pitch. So the guys around the park made it easy for. Uh, or just that they work unbelievably well. I'm going to go back to one minute 50 on the YouTube clip. And um, uh, here's a young man setting off on a, on, a, on a run of yours. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. And look at that offload to, to both. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. Moritz's didn't work quite as well. But you, you <laughs> I mean, talk about that and, and the way that you learned how to play that game, the running game, the offloading game. Is that, is that, from day one is that something that you you set about from the age of six or seven wanting to do talk us through that well it's quite nice i got um from a school level perspective i went to a school called polaris in south africa and they they give you the freedom my coaches called joe and they give me the freedom to play what i see it is normally when at school level, when you've got such a big emphasis on winning and losing, you know, you try to go mostly in your shell. And by just playing with your friends a lot and sidestepping and hookers shouldn't be, well, uh, I can't say hookers, but in general, people aren't known if you big or you play in the front row to avoid contact. Normally, South African style is running into everything you see. And luckily, they sort of helped me develop my skill set, my mental way of looking in the game. And I, I, I just don't see normal things as risky where normal coaches like Hanukkah Mayer in South Africa said, what is an offload? An offload is something I don't want to see. Mm. You know, it's, so for me, it was always nice going to place like Saracens. Uh, and a lot of times coaches couldn't understand. And, and that's... In, that they always thought it is a decision to be flashy. But for me, it was always, if I saw something, I went for it. And sometimes it came off and sometimes it didn't. But uh, when things come off, coaches normally praise you. When it doesn't come off, they go, what were you <laughs> thinking, you idiots? Um, two minutes 28 on the YouTube clip. Uh, this is the try. Effectively, the try that was the difference between the two sides. And it is down to you reading a field and finding the space. Talk us through it as I press play. Well, I was actually just running. I was just standing in the backfield trying to catch my breath. Um, as I was, <laughs> I think it was Alex Good that was, uh, we were pressurizing them from quite a bit and they couldn't, well, making their exit very difficult. 
And they, that was a good exit, but Goody got it. And I just saw, okay, there is Ayrsa. And I, I backed my pace. I know he's another prop. And I hate running around another prop. Um, but I thought, okay, I've, I've got him. And then it was just something, I just wanted the ball. You know, when there's space and I can run with it, I want it. And luckily, Goody gave it to me. And luckily, Shorty is, uh, is quick enough. Uh, I just had to run around one player and, and give a ball to Shorty and then he scored in the corner. So, I mean, yeah, it was just a, th- that feeling of when he scored was difficult to explain to anyone that haven't experienced that. That was the try and yet there was still so much more to do. Yes. And, and for the remainder of the game, that there was, there was a huge defensive effort that came through and, and the, these highlight clips don't really show the level of water tightness, if, if, that's, if, that is a, if that is a noun, that Saracens were able to produce and not let Leicester in. I mean, we'll, we'll see in a little bit a, a tackle on, on Alassane Tuolangi that, that you make, which, is, which, is, which just embodies the, the energy and the drive that you all had to, to, to try and get this job done. I mean, I think it's coming up here. We're three minutes 37 and, uh, to a, and, and uh, Alassane Tuolangi breaks down this hand side and I think it's you coming out of the backfield you, you tackle him from behind don't you you catch him yeah I, well it was a bit of an angle I can't take him <laughs> for that. but it was uh, it was I mean he was just one beast of a player it was so hard to get that size of a winger down it felt like back well not back in the down I didn't play with John Aloma but he was just the size and quickness and speed was just something totally different um, from from my perspective, is is yes uh, a great attack wins you game well wins you games but I'd, I mean the whole season our defence was superb but just the the way we defended during the season and then in the final I think there was I mean you can see you can see it here we're, we're four minutes thirty you can see the assault this is the end of the assault Leicester's assault on your I think it lasted about six minutes it was just tackle after tackle after tackle. Talk to us about what you were saying and how you were talking. And, then, and there's that Wayne Barnes penalty at the end. You can see the elation. It's incredible. Yeah, I, th- I think it was Kelly and Aaron's. Was, I can't remember who stole the ball or got the penalty right in the end. But it, it's once again, like, uh, like I said previously, some teams get confidence out of attack. And that whole season, we got confidence through defence. Uh, Gazi even brought in Wolves into our training sessions. Proper big wolves. I thought I, I wasn't sure. Is that true? I wasn't sure if that was that was you know sort of made up by the press. That was true. There was full on wolves. I almost. I can't. I, can't, I probably can't say that. I, I was. I, I almost be myself when I saw these wolves, and I thought I thought he met, he's crazy. I mean, even coming from South Africa, I've seen wolves, but I'm I'm sitting. Uh, not wolves. Um, um, lions, but I haven't seen. Uh, like wolves one-on-one two meters away from me and I went oh no this is a wild creature <laughs> uh, anyway so f- from uh, I mean the way that Gazi sort of what's the right way uh, commanded respect commanded work ethic uh, from a defensive effort was unbelievable and we all bought into this um, wolf back defense I mean even even Chris Wells uh, they've got a beer company that's not called Wolfpack. So, I mean, for us as, as, as players, it was something we proud ourselves of. So, 
I mean, you really see commitment from a team by the defense and not by the attack. And that's what we always said. We're going to show our commitment by how we defend our line. And they did an unbelievable job doing that. And, and this was the start. I mean, this, this is what really lit the fire for Saracen's reign over English rugby. I mean, did it always feel as though it was going to be as big and as wonderful as it ended up being? Um, no, uh, it, it, it's weird saying you say that, but was, even after winning and winning and, well, this sounds arrogant, but being successful, rather the right word, being successful from a team perspective, uh, it's always been the aim to, be, to make memories, even when you succeed. And even when you succeed, it's trying to be humble in the way you, you conduct yourself and do things. Uh, and the one thing, then you start being successful at home, but then you want to be successful in Europe. And that took us a lot longer to achieve. Um, and then it becomes extremely difficult to start competing on both fronts, uh, home and, and, and in Europe. But it was, for us, it was always an unbelievable journey of enjoyment. Where does this match rank and rate in all the games, the many games that you played for Saracens? Top three of all time, um, I would say, is it, it meant a lot for me, yes. But I think it meant a lot for a guy like Nigel and Roy the Kitman and the physios, doctors, uh, supporters that actually... They've been a lot longer uh, Saracen supporter than I've been. For years since, since I think Franchapino was successful in one or other cup, I mean, you had really dialed supporters. And it was for me is seeing the supporters cry next to the pitch. Then I only understood how much it meant to them. Um, and that's a beauty about uh, premiership supporters. I mean, you see the same with Exeter, they, they are extremely passionate. They are extremely loyal. And I can name not just uh, Exeter, but I can, I can mention Northampton, Leicester. Uh, it, it, there is so much love and passion for rugby in the UK. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Coming back to South Africa, they are very passionate about rugby, but sort of the love is lost to, to provincial rugby. You know, you, there you've got one player that plays mostly for one club for his whole life. In South Africa, they move around a lot more. So, I mean, if you look now, I can talk about Jamie or Owen. They're anonymous with Saracens. They haven't played for any other club but Saracens. So that's a beauty of what I love about the Premiership. It's an unbelievable competition. It's a difficult subject, and I'm certainly not going to ask you to sort of talk about it Um uh, from a political point of view or try and qualify it in any shape or form. But the announcement in sort of late 2019, which shook the rugby world and, and obviously, you know, the subsequent fallout, as, as we now are beginning to find out, Lord Miner's report into the salary cap suggests that um, if Saracens were uh, in the wrong, that they weren't alone. And, and we're, we're now finding out all of that. But I don't want to talk about that, but I do want to ask you a question about whether or not what has happened has changed the way that you view what you achieved with the club? It's, it's sad as people will question our success, question our, our culture, um, and question why we only train, for example, three times a week uh, and not four times like most clubs. Is for us to 
get work experience and life experience and grow as individuals. Um, yes, they, it, it will take away the bit of the success we've created at Saracens and people wonder why or they will say, well, because we overspent. But for me, the memories are made. Uh, the people I've met, uh, not just at Saracens, but around uh, England has been extremely successful. And for me, is is um, the help that I've found from from owners to supporters to help me uh, transition to my next career is more than anyone any in South Africa did. So for me, it's and I can not just say for myself, but for everyone at the club, um, it is sad, and there definitely needs to be, and they're doing that now, taking the the report and uh, actually adopting all of it. Uh, that I think is fantastic as you have to have the right regulations in place to make sure that it's played on a fair um, fair base. Let's talk about your retirement. We joked about it at the start. It's difficult to retire, isn't it? Especially when you love the game as much as you do. Funny enough, I, I thought my last contract would be in, uh, would be at Saracens um, in 2012, actually. And uh, <laughs> so funny, it, it didn't happen that way. Uh, and I played till I was 20, well, 2017, um, 2018. I finished and it was just an unbelievable experience. What, what was nice is talking about treating people or players uh, well is I couldn't train at, at 35, 36 like you do at 26. And, and the the SNC and coaches understood that and gave you a bit of leniency. Uh, and that's why I, one of the reasons I played for so long. But then retiring after being successful during the premiership, uh, won the, the, the league and then going and celebrating our career, uh, my career as a rugby player with my family in Ibiza. And then out of the blue, sipping on some cocktails, I get a text message from then the Springbok coach, Rashi Rasmus, asking me if I want to play another season. I thought it was a big joke. Uh, it was 11, 11 o'clock in Ibiza. It was about 12 o'clock in South Africa. You expect people to sleep by then in South Africa. And I text him back, I'm the biggest, strongest, fittest, prettiest, quickest I've ever been. Being extremely arrogant on the, on, on the phone. Uh, after like three messages of me bragging up how amazing I am uh, taking the mickey my solicitor's wife tells me you sure it's not Rossi I said Glenda I'm 38 years old it's definitely Vincent Koch he's in South Africa he's definitely on the on the juice uh, he's just taking the mickey phone the number um, first I text Vincent so it's an unknown number Vincent said no it isn't then he's sleeping the next moment I have to make that phone call and that was by one o'clock in the morning. Yes, it picks up Rossi Erasmus. <laughs> and I go, oh, I can't use this word. And that, that brought me back, funny enough, uh, uh, back to rugby. And funny enough, it was unbelievable. Cambridge said I can uh, come back a year later. Uh, Jan Rupert slash Remgro Raynet said, what's the difference of me starting to work at 38 or 39? Doesn't really make a difference. And then most importantly, uh, the sacrifice that my family have to make with 
me being a rugby player. Um, she agreed for me to live my, or, you know, have my last hurrah as a rugby player. And that was amazing. So I only, I only slept 15 days and eight months at home. So you are away a lot. And people don't always see the sacrifice that moms, wives, children make for their dads to be successful in their career. So yeah, it, it, it's, the rest is history, but it's been, uh, the friend, lastly, Sam, just on that, the, the people that embrace the South African boy uh, that still can't speak great English was just for me phenomenal. I'm not just talking about Saracens. The British uh, people has, has taken me in and, and uh, there's a big part of my family that is full on British. My boys are the British passport. My boys are, they still think they're British, to be honest. Um, so it, it's, uh, there's going to be a big conflict uh, when I think when they grow older. I think you'll probably have a few uh, scouts just watching those boys grow up and making sure that, you know, if they can come and play for England at some stage, they might be interested. <laughs> I, want, I want to end on, on one thing because I, I, did a, I did one of these one game at a time with, with Carl Dixon. Uh, the uh, the referee yeah. he he talked about his journey to to being a referee his his first premiership game was down at Kingshoe Saracens versus uh, uh, Gloucester and he said one of his memories of that game was when you scored you ran over to him and said sir I think I've followed through <laughs> is this true yes. <laughs> No, it, for me, it, it's quite amazing. Same as Glenn. I, I, was, I was quite lucky that I could play for quite a long time rugby. Uh, I, I was getting, becoming part of the furniture. But it's, it's, have a guy like him or uh, Glenn Jackson refing me was quite a surreal experience. It's, you go from you know, competing with each other to playing against each other. So that was quite nice. You had to leave the field, did you, at one stage, to, to change your shorts? Uh, yes, I did have. <laughs> as, as people would understand, uh, when, when you're in a scrum, and I only weighed 98 in your scrum against guys that's three times my size, uh, they push you in uh, from all kinds of directions. And sometimes... You know, like a thing that's got too much pressure, it has to pop. So uh, many a times I had to make sure that I'd uh, go clean my shorts. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any, any more questions, Your Honour. I think we're going to leave it there. Um, it has been an utter joy speaking to you and hearing about the way that you played and the way that you did things. Um, I, I hope you have as much fun in your retirement as, as you did playing, uh, playing rugby. Um, it's been an absolute treat to speak to you. And uh, thank you, Skulk Brits, for your one game at a time. Sam, it's a big pleasure and lots of love uh, from the Brits family out of uh, Stellenbosch. If any of you is in Stellenbosch and you want some good wine, just come and say hi. <laughs>